Screen Time with John Fardy. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Screen Time. I'm John Fardy and this is News Talk's TV and movie show. This week on the show, Johnny Flynn on his new war drama, One Life, where he plays a principal stockbroker who helped rescue nearly 700 children from Czechoslovakia in World War II. Chris Wasser is here with some of the week's other new movie releases, including Daniel Levy's directorial debut, Good Grief. Plus, Ireland's favourite spaceman, Leo Enright, chats about his favourite movie. I'm open on Twitter. John underscore Fardy, or you can email me screentime at newstalk.com. This show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5 pm on newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud, and it's on the radio every Saturday at 6 pm here on Newstalk. Good weekend to you all, and happy new year. Whatever day of the week it is, it's been a strange week in terms of time, hasn't it? I was back to work on the 2nd of January, but it seemed half the country weren't. Uh, schools were still off, so it's it, it's weird where people are at. People don't seem to know what day of the week it is. If you're listening on the radio, it is Saturday at 6pm. If you're listening on podcast, who knows? Who knows? But uh, I do hope you had a nice Christmas and you're having a nice new year so far. I had a nice Christmas, lots of Santa. If on a movie related matter, if, you know, they're going to make another Jurassic Park and they run out of sets, they could come to our house. We have a five-year-old who's obsessed with dinosaurs and there are a lot of dinosaurs of all shapes and sizes in our house at the moment. Now, a lot of TV over Christmas. I'll just whistle-stop through it all very quickly. Mrs. Brown's Boys, of course, was on uh, Christmas Day and New Year's Eve, two Christmas Eve specials, or two Christmas specials. This divides people, as we know. People can't stand it. Some people love it. All I'll say is I'm not a particular fan. I don't think it's as terrible as the people who hate it claim. But I remember saying to you this time last year that the episodes this year were shockingly bad, just because I thought they were really badly written, just loose. And I did think this year it was better. Uh, He clearly, Mr O'Connell, had worked on the jokes a bit and the stories, they weren't bad. I know that's not high praise, but th- but they weren't bad. Uh, particularly the one on Christmas Eve made me laugh once or twice. It's no Seinfeld, but you know, it wasn't bad. And I, I don't mean that to sound snobby if you love it, but I, I the comedy writing isn't genius in it or anything, but it, it's not bad. You know, it'll, it'll make you laugh occasionally, I found. Also, over Christmas, I watched the new Ricky Gervais special, which launched on Christmas Day, an unusual day for a Netflix special to launch, called Armageddon. This is classic Ricky Gervais taking a look at the world, and I suppose he might see it as an antidote to wokeism of sort. But what I will say in his defence is, you may well be offended by a lot of what he has to say, but it's cleverly argued what he has to say and wittily argued. This is not kind of offensiveness from the 1970s for its own sake. You may well be offended, as I say, but it is argued in very intellectually astute and funny ways, most importantly. I'm kind of of the opinion that I can't be offended by a comedian. I mean, there are some exceptions, obviously, and when it gets into the area of paedophilia, I find those jokes a bit hard to take. But Outside of that, I you know, I don't really find offence in comedians and, and I think Ricky Gervais is one of the cleverest comedians working today and writers generally and uh, I think he's great. And I, I thought Armageddon on Netflix was really good and it's only about an hour and 15 minutes which I think is the perfect length for a stand-up special. That they, I don't think you really need 
anyone longer than that. I know, you know, Billy Connolly did Royal at the Albert Hall and that was incredible. I think that's over two hours long. But the, the modern era of a stand-up special by being out an hour, I think is, is a pretty good way of doing it, I have to say. I've also been watching Fool Me Once on Netflix. This is the new Harlan Cohen, Harlan Coben uh, serialization of one of his books. Harlan Coben has written these wildly successful kind of crime thrillers which are famous for the mad and relentless twists in them. There was one called The Stranger on Netflix a few years ago, which was very good. There have been a few more since. This one, Fool Me Once, has an intriguing premise where a lady buries her husband and then she sees him on a nanny cam after the funeral. Now, the thing is, I've enjoyed this so far. I'm only two or three into it. It does feel a bit like twists for twists sake uh, so you might be highly irritated by this and you know it sounds like a damning criticism I don't mean it as a damning criticism but the twists are almost like they could be AI generated if you know what I mean so it's full of mad twists uh, but it's okay it, it, it's entertaining so far that's Fool Me Once on Netflix do you want to quickly mention I was in the cinema as a paying customer uh, twice over the Christmas because as I mentioned to you before I usually go to screenings and they're often in the morning full of angry people who don't talk to each other and uh, sometimes evening screenings which are kind of with competition winners and stuff which are nice to go to so I don't always pay because that's part of the gig And I, but I brought my family on a couple of occasions this time over Christmas and I'm going to go out on a limb here and say and I won't name the cinema or anything like that but I was in the same cinema twice and I just think the people behind those desks need to bear in mind that going to the cinema is meant to be a very jolly thing uh, in the same way as it is going to a gig. And, you know, maybe it's a question of the cinema owners needing to pay people more so they're happier in their jobs, but it's quite an unpleasant start to the movie you're going to see when you feel like the people who are giving you the tickets and giving you the popcorn feel like you're interrupting their conversation so I would ask us and this is only one that I happen to be in twice and I'm you know I'm not generalising it's just and, and there are some wonderful cinemas with wonderful staff in them but just if any cinema usher or cinema person is listening if you can you know try and be nice to the people who are coming to pay, you know, 50 quid for a family. Uh, I know you have your own problems going on and everything like that, but the cinema is meant to be a joyful kind of thing. And it should begin with, you know, I'm not saying you have to be joyful, but, you know, appear happy when people come into this cinema, if that's okay. I realise I sound like old man shouts at cloud. But anyway, what I did go and see, I'd seen Wonka. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago, but I went with uh, two of my three children, my five-year-old kind of went to the cinema for the first time. We'd taken him a few years ago and he really didn't like the noise and all, which is it's quite common. But we took him to Paw Patrol, the mighty movie. He's just turned five and he absolutely loved it. It, it is a great... Now, it's Paw Patrol. It's about dogs, you know, saving people. Cartoon dogs. <laughs> but it was a nice hour and a half and he loved it. His attention was wrapped. I mean, you know, and, and it can be hard to stay focused in the cinema for any of us with the popcorn, the bouncy chairs, but he absolutely loved it. So if you've toddlers, like, you know, three to six, maybe my eight-year-old daughter said she enjoyed it as well, but I think she was just being kind and she is very kind. But uh, a three to six-year-old, I, I checked Paw Patrol, the mighty movie is still in cinemas and it is well worth a watch. And I just want to quickly mention on the show before Christmas and all that madness, we did review Priscilla 
and Kira Tracy who reviewed it for me gave it five stars I gave it four it is just in cinemas from the 1st of January so you may be going to it this weekend it is very very good and Kaylee Spaney who praised Priscilla is brilliant in it as is Jacob Elordi who does Elvis but this is very much Priscilla's story and it will refigure uh, your opinion if you have one on the relationship between Elvis and Lisa Marie it, it's somewhat of a antidote slash corrective different version of the Elvis story told through Priscilla's uh, gaze and it is based on Priscilla's book Elvis and Me and directed by Sofia Coppola so look that's a lot of ground there we've covered uh, get in touch with me John underscore Friday is my Twitter handle you can email me screen time at newstalk.com about anything you may have been watching how you have found people in the cinema when you're buying your popcorn or anything I'm standing by. Now, this week, I was watching this. Now, an extraordinary story about a young man who many years ago visited Prague. What he found there were thousands of refugees at the mercy of Hitler's imminent invasion. Do you ever think about the children and what happened to them? I bet you got some stories. That's really not about me. We are working to evacuate these children by train to safety in Britain. Why are you doing this, Mr. Winton? Because I may be able to do something about it. I must. Nikki, you must know we cannot save them all. You have to forgive yourself that. Now that is a clip from One Life. It tells the true story of Sir Nicholas Nicky Winton, a young London broker played by Johnny Flynn, who along with some other people on the British Committee for Refugees in Czechoslovakia rescued 669 children from the Nazis in the months leading up to World War II. Nicky visited Prague in December 1938 and found families who had fled the rise of Nazis in Germany and Austria living in desperate conditions with little or no shelter or food and under threat of Nazi invasion as well. He immediately realised that it was a race against time. How many children could he and his team save before the Nazis cross the border? Now, the movie takes place with Nicky being in 1938, played by Johnny Finn, but then it also has a tandem story 50 years later, 1988, and Nicky, now played by Anthony Hopkins, lives kind of haunted by the children he wasn't able to bring to safety and kind of blames himself all through the years. And this isn't a spoiler because this is very much in the public domain. It's not until a live BBC show, That's Life. You remember that with... Esther Ranson in the 80s when it was out of tight surprises him by introducing him to some of the surviving children now adults and he finally begins to come to terms with the guilt and the grief and realise he actually did a great thing in a very big way and uh, has some kind of uh, epiphany about all that he did and it was kind of something that he thought was no big deal in a certain sense. It's a very well told movie and the two-tier approach of Nicky during the war or just before the war and Nicky in 1988 is very well handled. Anthony Hopkins is great in it, as is Johnny Flynn. Now, Johnny Flynn was on this show last year or the year before in a movie called Operation Mincemeat, also a World War II movie. He's been in all sorts of things, movies like Beast and Emma. He played David Bowie in Stardust. That's not a great movie. He's very good as Bowie in it, though. They didn't allow 
Bowie music to be used in it. His TV credits include Vanity Fair and a show we talked about on this station and this show a good bit, The Lovers, opposite Roisin Gallagher, which he is great in. He's a fine actor and as I say, he plays Nicky Winton in One Life and I spoke to him earlier in the week. You know, you read Man Frees all these people out of a war zone and gets them to England and it kind of, you know, it reads like that. But then you see the like Herculean effort that this guy, Nicholas Winton, went to like mm. visas, foster homes. He had a job of his own. That was the thing I was really struck by, that this was like an almost impossible thing to do. Was that what struck you? It may not have been, but that's what I took away when I saw it. Absolutely. And just the the thought that we make it so hard for people to do the right thing, you know, governments and, and um, you know, the legislation and the borders and um, there's no, you know, there's no common sense stick. And uh, when when you look into the real story of what happened, you know, uh, the only other country that took some of the kids was Sweden um, and America refused to take any of these um, Jewish refugees. The Netherlands, um, uh, as soon as... Germany started their sort of invasions going west. They they closed their borders to Jewish refugees, and Nicky had to fight very hard for the trains to be able to pass through Holland to um, uh, to get the ferry from the Hook of Holland. So it it was so difficult, and I guess that's the that's the drama of our story and and the the, the message of the film, which is um, you know. Uh, can we think about this, please? It's, you know, we're facing a, a, another period of time with huge, you know, uh, humanitarian issues around the world and mm. many, many migrants and refugees fleeing conflict. And um, it's a desperate situation. And Nikki, uh, you know, it takes, sometimes it takes ma- maverick thinking and rule breaking. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Now, Anthony Hopkins plays the other version of Nicky, uh, the, the, which makes you the younger one, which I'm sure you're pleased to hear. You're seen as younger and he's older. But <laughs> I wonder, and he does it very well, as as do you, and he does it very well as this kind of, oh, shucks, it was nothing really, you know, and anyone mm. would have done it, and his ordinary madness. But I'm wondering in terms of, you know, there being a line between the two of you. Did you feel the need to meet him or, or, or did you meet to establish that or is it important that you don't nearly? Um, well, we did meet. It was James, brilliantly, our, our director James invited me on set when, when Anthony was doing his um, scenes. And even though Anthony and I don't share a, a scene, obviously, it was mm. really useful um to get a sense of him because you know there isn't that much footage of of Nikki and I think uh, for the audience to to believe in this character it was important that they could see the through line between me and Anthony yeah. and think of him as a real person um uh, and the same person from from the 30s to the 80s so anyway so I was on set with him and he was he was brilliant he was and he was so lovely and and i know that the story is is as important to him as it is to me so we talked about that and um it's it was it, he was brilliant you know i was saying to you before we came on air uh, uh, i spoke to you for operation mince meat now it was a very different movie but it was also set in a war like you're not a politician nor am i but it just occurred to me watching this one life that like if we stop going to war 
so many bad things wouldn't happen. I know. I don't know if that struck you in terms of the last few two movies you've made, but I don't know. That's that's a thought I had. That so many of the world's problems have to do with countries going to war. Yeah, uh, I was I was having that thought on the way in this morning, um, just thinking what what a mess the world is, and and mm-hmm. um you know sadly and why like what what what's going on what's what's been happening in humanity for thousands of years and i guess you know we are so culpable uh, you know our, the, us as in big um western states um yeah. in terms of imperialism and you know it goes back to um that spread of empire and we we mess up local economies and local um governing systems and then of course um and we and we we rob them and and of course now we have conflict and um mm. and we pit it's hardly surprising people against each other and yeah so i think i don't know i don't know how we get out of out of the mess that we're in but um it's good to tell stories uh stories Absolutely. stories help us think about these things and process the real human cost yeah. of it yeah, absolutely. Listen, just finally then, our, our time is nearly up, but I do a series on this station you're talking to me on called Boxed, where I recommend TV shows to people. And only three weeks ago, we did The Lovers. Okay. Uh, and people have been, not just on account of me, but I'm getting a huge reaction to it because it kind of, certainly in Ireland, flew under the radar slightly. I don't know if what something bigger was on in Ireland at the time, but people are absolutely loving that show. Oh, great. Uh, to my mind. And see it as kind of a an almost anti-rom-com in a way. That seems very pleasing to people that there's, because your two characters, Rosie's, you you're in love but you're messy you're really messy in that show you know i i presume that was a pleasing show to make i loved it yeah and i'm a huge fan of david ireland the writer and that was the idea the idea of david ireland writing a rom-com i was i was sold um that's the only um rom-com i think i'd want to be in but yeah he he, (laughs) and rasheen i just um i adore rasheen gallagher who i got to act opposite and um the whole process was great but yeah the messiness and the the rudeness and the the outrageousness but also the the way of um uh doing a love story it it, it kind of in that dark kind of real human way just felt brilliant yeah yeah well it was pleasingly messy well listen that's great as is one life thanks very much for talking to me thank you thank you very much Johnny Flynn there talking about the lovers but uh, ostensibly one life and I should say one life is now in cinemas very much in cinemas and uh, it's well worth a watch Anthony Hopkins and Johnny Flynn are both great in it up next some other new movie releases including Daniel Levy's directorial debut Now you're welcome back to Screen Time, News Talks TV and Movie Show. Now before the break we were talking about One Life and we also mentioned Priscilla, big cinema releases. Now there are other movies, uh, lots of them it turns out. We're going to be talking about Good Grief, a new Netflix mm, comedy drama of sorts from Daniel Levy. Uh, new Amazon release Freelance, John Cena uh, being funny and action heroic. And Jules, a movie that launched last week, which I think a lot of people might have missed, which is in cinemas starring Ben Kingsley who encounters an alien delighted to be joined now by our regular reviewer Chris Wasser Chris hello and happy new year John a very happy new year to you too hope you're well 
Thank you. Indeed I am. So listen, uh, Daniel Levy, I, I'm going to call him Levy there. It's Daniel Levy, though I think is the correct pronunciation. People love him. I'm one of those people. I love Shit's Creek. I think he's a very sincere kind of guy, both as an actor and when you see him in interviews. So this is kind of a grief comedy of sorts. A grief comedy is one way of putting it, yeah. Or, you know, a, a well-intentioned, sincere friendship drama, relationship relationship drama. It's kind of Daniel uh, Levy's attempt at, you know, trying to... You, and you're right, he is quite a sincere guy, uh, you know, when he's being interviewed. And I think a lot of people because they just know him from from Schitt's Creek they think okay he's he's just this he's the comedy man and here he's trying to do something serious and he's multitasking he's stretching himself so he writes this film he directs it's his directorial debut uh, well as, as far as features are concerned he produces and he also fronts it um, and there is quite a, a compelling story here and he plays a guy named Mark who used to be um, used to be a bit of an artist but it actually just works kind of uh, illustrating children's books now particularly those by his husband Oliver played by Luke Evans uh always the always reliable luke evans whenever he's in the film it just lights up um and he illustrates all of his books which have you know sold by the bucket load and they've been turned into this million dollar film franchise for young adults they live a very cozy comfortable wealthy life together in london and we check in on them at their christmas party this annual party where they you know have songs that they've rehearsed where all of their best friends come along there's sophie played by our own ruth nega there is thomas which is actually who's actually mark's ex-boyfriend and now he's his best friend he's played by the brilliant Hemish Patel um, and they all just gather to drink and tell each other how much they love one another and they also look great John everyone in this film is so well dressed unfortunately there's tragedy around the corner um, Oliver has a flight to catch straight after the um, straight after the Christmas party he's off to France his taxi doesn't make it to the end of the road he's involved in a car accident and we watch then over a few minutes it's 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 a year of grief within a few minutes how mark just struggles to you know to adjust to life to adjust to a life without oliver you know how is he supposed to start over how is he supposed to and was it a misnomer of me to suggest it was a comedy in any fashion Oh, it's yeah. I mean, there are some jokes in here, but it, it, this is this is not a comedy at all. This okay, yeah, it doesn't sound yeah, like one. It's definitely Daniel Levi or Daniel Levy's big serious drama. Um, but after a year of grief, which again we only see in a few minutes, he discovers a secret about his husband, and it's not a very flattering secret. He discovers that you know he might have had a secret lover in Paris, and he's afraid to tell. Mark is afraid to tell his mates this because his mates have basically put their lives on hold to look after him to kind of bring him back to himself. So as a thank you. He thinks I'll take them to Paris for the weekend, but where are they staying, John? They're actually staying in Oliver's secret love pad. So that wow. probably won't end well. <laughs> so I, I, I had this, but I haven't got around to watching it, unfortunately, but I watched a few clips. It seemed very sweet, sincere, as I've already mentioned. I nearly welled up at one point during one of the clips. Is is it very sweet and wholesome and sad? It is, yeah. I mean, it did, I found it quite moving, especially at the beginning, because you know, it's not a spoiler to say that Oliver dies. This is the whole setup yeah. that you know Mark is trying to you know basically start his life over, and we see Luke Evans as Oliver in flashbacks. That's all, that's all we really get from from his character. But we also get a, a very moving funeral scene. Um, which does have a bit of awkward comedy in it. Caitlin Dever uh, cameos as the star of the films based on Oliver's books. And she gives this cringy uh, eulogy at the funeral, which is aw awkward, funny, all the rest of it. Like, like a scene from Schitt's Creek, actually. Um, <laughs> but there's a very moving scene where David Bradley playing the part of Oliver's father talks about how, you know, this should have been me, not my son. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, D Daniel Levy is certainly good at, you know, pulling out our heartstrings you know and this is quite a sincere earnest film a little too much at times and i i do 
I like the idea of Daniel of Daniel Levy saying, "You know what? I'm going to give something else a change, or going to yeah. give something else a try." He played the same character on television for years. We all know what he can do. He's testing himself here. I just think it's a little too indulgent. It's a little too serious. You, it's full of this film is kind of full of full of very hip and trendy characters talking a lot, but rarely saying anything that makes sense or rarely saying anything that, that, that that's interesting. You know, there's an awful lot of theater talk in this thing. And there's an awful lot of, you know, people kind of giving these sort of hallmarky one-liners, you know, talking to each other as though they're walking, talking greeting cards. And that gets a little bit annoying after a while. Um, and it's a shame because you think Daniel Levy, fantastic. You think Himish Patel, brilliant in yesterday a film that yes. i will defend until the end of time um and then ruth nega who is just one of our best and doesn't make that many films john so you're thinking yeah. to yourself, if she's saying yes to this then there must be something special here and you also think that if you put those three actors in a room you're going to get fireworks you don't because the material is just it's a little bit too stiff and it's a bit too overwritten so i did enjoy watching this and i enjoy watching these actors perform i just expected a whole lot more from them Okay, okay. That sounds like a slight shame because based on the characters, Ruth Negga, of course, uh, chief among them, a wonderful actress, Daniel Levy, Hamish, brilliant. And I agree with you about yesterday. I mean, not a perfect movie, but a delightful one. So what would you say stars-wise for Good Grief? I think it's watchable. Um, I look forward to seeing what Daniel Levy does next. Uh, it's always great to see Ruth Negga again. I don't know why she doesn't make that many films. Um, so I think a solid three. Give it a go. Okay. You know, you know, take a chance on Daniel Levy doing something different. You won't hate it. Okay. Okay. Not a glowing endorsement. <laughs> Let's take a quick clip of Good Grief. I haven't been sleeping. Mm. I've been uh, reading that the brain is like a muscle. That's why getting over a death is so hard, because your brain has been trained to feel things for a person. And when they go away, your head is still operating under the impression that it should feel those things for that person. Like muscle memory. So I'm just trying to train my brain to not feel as much for right now just to get me through the next year so that I'm not constantly reminded of the fact that I am now both an orphan and a widow were. Why does it look like I haven't been sleeping? Now, that was a clip from Good Grief, which is on Netflix from this Friday, the 5th of January. Solid, not life-changing, according to Chris Wasser, who gave it three stars. And it is written and directed by the adored, I think it's fair to say, Daniel Levy of Schitt's Creek fame. Now, a movie that was out in that weird week between Christmas and New Year, Chris, was Jewels. And it's still in cinemas and will be for another couple of weeks. And it is on streaming platforms as well. Ben Kingsley, a lonely pensioner in County. E.T. or something along those lines. That's pretty much it. You know, it's also Ben Kingsley with uh, with hair. <laughs> you know, we don't we don't Which see, we that, don't see that, that often. often. Yeah. No, um, he is playing a guy named Milton Robinson, and Milton's days. Um, he's you know fast approaching eighty, and his days are interchangeable. Um, there are a few signs to show that you know he he was married, that his wife has left before he did, uh, the, that he has grown up children. One of them talks to him still; the other one doesn't want anything to do with him. And he he lives alone, and the only time he ever kind of goes out is to get a few groceries in or to attend these mundane town council 
council meetings where he just stands there and says that he thinks the town's model should be changed or they should have a new traffic light on this corner or that corner. And all, all people like him, all of the old age pensioners in the area, they do the same, but no one ever listens to them. Now, there are also signs that Milton might be beginning, you know, he might, uh, he might be losing his memory. Uh, so mm-hmm. the daughter that still talks to him, Denise, played by Zoe Winters from, from Succession, she's quite uh, concerned. So you think to yourself, right, okay, we've got a very, you know, uh, somber, steady drama here about, you know, an OAP who is, you know, in the early stages of Alzheimer's. That's not what this film's about. All of a sudden, one night, John, a UFO crash lands in his back garden. And he steps out to see that there's this poor alien you know, injured on, on the ground that crushed his flowers and that crushed his birdhouse. And he's not, he's not too happy about that. And he, he thinks to himself, he, and he tries to tell other people that, you know, an alien is living in my back garden, but nobody believes him. They just think he's losing his marbles. So he enlists a couple of neighbors that will listen. We've got Jane Curtin in there. We've got Harry and Sansom Harris. And they decide to give the visitor a name. That's where Jules comes from. They said they'll keep it a secret. And they basically work together to nurse this alien back to health. And is, and hopefully this isn't a spoiler question, but is the alien acted by someone? Yes, uh, under a mountain of prosthetics and makeup, it okay. is a stunt performer named Jade Kwan. And it's actually, it's a really lovely performance because the alien never talks. The alien just sits there uh, and eats apples or, uh, you know, makes these faces, uh, you know, that, that, that let all the other, that let the people around it know if it's happy or sad. It never says anything, but it does at the same time form a rather sweet friendship with okay. these three neighbors. Um, so yeah, it is, it's, it's quite effective, you know, it's a bit of a comfort watch, but I'm okay with that. Um, it's kind of like this, uh, it's this weird cross between Cocoon and E.T. And again, that's, you know, Cocoon's great, E.T.'s better. What, you know, I'm 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 fine with the film. You know, kind of being inspired by both of those. Um, and I'm not yeah. really sure what exactly it was trying to say. It kind of you know drifts away from you know the Alzheimer's story. I'm not really sure what it's trying to say about loneliness or or getting old. Um, but it makes an effort. You know, it's a little bit disorganized. It gets a little bit confused. But it is very very sweet and quite funny at times too. Yeah. Now, again, I haven't seen this, but from the clips, uh, Ben Kingsley with hair seems to carry off that lonely gentleman very well. He does, yeah. I mean, he doesn't. He actually doesn't say a lot, uh, and that works best for the film. You know, even when when he sees the UFO crash lands in his back garden, the only thing he can say is "Oh my," uh, and that's the sort of character <laughs> we're dealing with here. You know, he's grown very used to to not talking to anyone. So to actually have an alien pal that he can't communicate, that he just sits there and eats apples and watches, watches Judge Judy with, it's actually quite funny. Um, so yeah, I just I, I found it a charming central turn. Uh, one of the best he's, he's given us in a while. Lovely support from, from, from Jane and from Harriet. Uh, and yeah. some great ideas too. Some very ambitious ideas. Not all of them work out. There's a, there's a very peculiar um, thing in there that involves cats and cats that might help the, the the alien get back to its planet wherever that is and and you're thinking to yourself mm, maybe you've, you've gone a step too far but i'd rather it be ambitious than to just do things that other films have done before um so yeah, yeah. it's worth a watch so it doesn't all come together but but pleasing and certainly intriguing and, and a movie less ordinary you would say so what would you say stars wise for jewels you no know, i'll put i'll push it out to three and a half out of five Okay, okay. Well, that that's, you know, on a dark January evening, it sounds like there could be worse things to watch than Jules, which is in cinemas and also on various uh, platforms, uh, digital platforms. I don't mean actual platforms, digital ones. You will need a TV or a screen to watch them. Now, talking of big ambition and the possible lack of, there is a movie that launched on Monday on Amazon Prime called Freelance, where John Cena is kind of a retired hitman or something along those lines 
He is. He's a retired special forces action man. Um, he actually retrains as a as a lawyer following a, a botched mission, and you know he injures himself, and you know he can't be on the field anymore. So despite the fact that he has a, a good, respectable job and he's making money, he just wishes his life was more exciting. His name is Mason Petit. I'm probably pronouncing his name wrong here, but you know what? I don't care. Uh, <laughs> he is. Uh, he's just fed up with everything. He's fed up with his job. He has a beautiful family, but he's a little bit bored there. He doesn't like his house, his neighborhood. It's a good thing then that an old army mate played by Christian Slater gets in touch and says, I have a gig for you. So he offers him this position, despite the fact that this guy can't move without hurting his back. He offers him a position <laughs> as a high risk security protection officer thing for this renowned journalist played by the great Alison Brie, who's traveling to this uh, fictional South American region to interview a dictator played by Juan Pablo Raba. And Christian Slater says, look, it'll be 20 grand. You'll be in and out in a day. It's a simple job, but you know, these things never are, John. So yes. as soon as they land in the fictional state of Paldonia, Armed rebels come out of everywhere. They end up being chased through through the jungle with the dictator, with the journalist. It's just chaos. Okay. So is it great or is it bad? It's very, very bad. Um, I, I don't know what went wrong here. Um, John Cena is, you know, he's... He's the closest thing we have to, uh, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger's still with us, thankfully, but he's the closest thing we have to a contemporary Arnie, I think. And I usually like him. Uh, you know, he's got great biceps and he's got great comic chops, but here yeah. they're all just wasted. Um, it's the same for Alison Brie, who is just brilliant with comedy, but it's just wasted here. And I think part of the problem is that herself and John Cena, they're horrible together. They just have no chemistry whatsoever. I don't know if these did they meet like seconds before the opening scene, their their first scene together. I'm not sure, but there's just there's no sign that they're that they that they, they, they shouldn't be on camera together. Um, <laughs> it's it's it really is that bad. Pierre um, uh, uh, Morel, who gave us Taken, it looks as though you know he's never made an action film before, and that's pretty much all he's been doing with his career. Um, I thought the stunt work was quite shoddy. Um, it's the first action film in a long time, John, where I've sat there going, you can see that that's not the actors riding those horses and really? fighting and falling down there. And, and I know, you know, it's hard to cover up some stunt pieces, but some of the stuff here is quite lazy, spectacularly. So, um, so wow. the jokes are non-existent. The action is quite, uh, it's quite shoddy. The, the tone is quite tacky. I'd say it's actually quite toneless. It's sometimes a bit too aggressive and a bit too offensive. And then sometimes it's just, it's, it, it, it's, trying to make us laugh but failing miserably it really is a spectacular misfire and i say that again as a fan of brie a fan of um of, of john cena uh, a fan of christian slater obviously and not so much a fan of pierre morel the director but he can direct the film so i don't really know what went wrong. yeah so an action comedy where the action doesn't look good and there's no funny jokes that's really quite damning tell me this just you mentioned christian slater i just love to see him on screen is the material just too weak even for him Oh, it is. Yeah, he. Uh, I think he has a handful of scenes, and one of them involves him sitting in a car talking to John Cena on the phone, and the other one involves him kind of just walking around a desk talking to John Cena, who is actually in the room. So he's not really pushing himself here, John, uh, <laughs> and that and that's a shame because he has made some interesting films since kind of uh, you know he, he disappeared there for a while, and then he came back and made a few interesting, uh, had a few interesting roles. Uh, this is not one of them, and I should say also, poor John Cena. Again, I'm going to say for the third time, I like him. He is incapable of hiding the fact that he does not want to be in this film. Wow, that's bad. And Christian Slater in the cast and meeting going, will I have to walk that much? This sounds really <laughs> bad. So what are you going to say stars-wise for Freelance? It's got to be one. I think, yeah, wow. it, 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 like it's all, hopefully it's all uphill from here, John. First week, of the, first week of the year and already one star. 
Yeah, we can only hope. Okay, so that is a pretty bad one star for Freelance, which is on Amazon, if you want to see if Chris speaks the truth, which he usually does. Bad movie. Great to talk to you, Chris, and Happy New Year again. Nice one, John. Happy New Year. Chris Wasser there discussing some of the week's new releases. So, good grief, worth a watch. So is Jewels, by the sounds of things. Freelance, definitely, definitely not. Now, up next, the favourite movie of Ireland's favourite spaceman, Leo Enright. Now, you're welcome back to Screen Time News Talks TV and Movie Show. Now, we turn now to our favourite movie slot, where we talk to someone well-known about their favourite movie. I'm delighted to be joined by, I guess it's fair to say, Ireland's best-known, longest-serving, largest <laughs> space commentator and, indeed, space enthusiast, <laughs> Leo Enright. I don't know where the largest came from, Leo. I'm sorry about that. But you're welcome. And a happy new year to you. Now, listen, I said to someone outside, guess what his favourite movie is? And they guessed it. So will you tell our listeners what it is and why? All right. Well, that, that I, I do understand that it seems very obvious. But to be honest, there there was no contender in my mind for the best movie that I've ever seen. And that has to be 2001, A Space Odyssey, uh, Stanley Kubrick's masterpiece from way way back in 1968. Yes. And uh, the amazing thing is uh, that I'm not only Ireland's longest serving space commentator, uh, I'm also at this stage fairly old. So <laughs> I actually saw it uh, when it first came out. And more importantly and more excitingly, uh, I have the bragging rights that I actually saw it in the Cinerama Theatre in Dublin back then in 1968. Wow. Now, it's a long time ago, not to age you, but it is a classic. I mean, books have literally been written about this movie and the making of and Kubrickisms and all that kind of stuff. But there are lots of people who haven't seen it. Will you just give us a, a kind of potted sense of what it's about? Uh, I have no idea <laughs> what it's about. We're in a cul-de-sac. Uh, really, nobody does. Uh, there, this was one of the great mysteries of 2001, A Space Odyssey, was that people came out of the cinema saying, what was that all about? Uh, and the, uh, the question has never really been answered. It is something, something uh, to do with a voyage by astronauts to Jupiter and its moons and a sentient computer called HAL, yeah. Um, who guided the ship until it didn't. I don't want to spoil the story because everybody should see it, and I'll have ideas about how to see it uh, later. And they're investigating an alien monolith, a huge black slab that first appears on the moon, but seems in some Kubrickian sense of time and space seems to have come from Jupiter. Uh, so yeah. that's uh, that's as best I can do to describe it. But basically the thing is just, it was 1968. This thing was a damn acid trip. No <laughs> two ways about it. So take me back to you in Cinerama in 1968. What was it that kind of blew your mind? Well, I, the, it's from the very beginning of this film, um, it's it's jaw-dropping. And the problem for most people who've seen it since uh, is that they won't have seen it in Cinerama. 
you've got to remember, for those who don't know, Cinerama is a kind of a wraparound. It's about 160 degrees uh, of the, the, the wall in front of you is a wraparound screen. It's not quite as tall as IMAX, not at all as tall as IMAX, but it's, it's an immersive experience uh, in the most extraordinary way. Mm. And uh, to see this film, the first scene is, if everybody now knows, the famous picture taken by Apollo 8 of the Earth rising behind the moon. Mm. Well, now, that was taken in December, actually on December 24th, 1968. I can say that for certain because it was taken on Christmas Eve 1968 by the astronauts. But Kubrick's film came out in April of 1968. Mm. So the guy predicted the photograph of the 20th century. Wow. Yeah, I hadn't I hadn't thought about it that sequence. way. And the opening sequence is exactly that view, mm. the Earth rising from behind the moon. Did this light the fire in you for a lifetime of space devotion or had that fire well and truly been lit before then? It, it had somewhat been lit before that, but there's absolutely no way that you could say that it didn't uh, have a huge effect on me. Yeah. It had a huge influence on everybody. I, I do suspect a lot of people of my generation now, you know, I'm talking about people like Bill Clinton and... Uh, Steve Jobs and, you know, all these uh, famous people um, that they they talk about being children of the Apollo era. But I, I'm quite convinced that all of those people also will have seen 2001 A Space Odyssey when it first came out. And they will also have been awed by that. Mm. So I actually do think that Kubrick had an influence on that Apollo generation. Yeah. And that really, you know, all the kind of future stuff that we've seen since then comes out of his, the inspiration from that film. And, you know, Hal is one of the characters, albeit, you know, and, and there, there's modern, you know, dovetailing here with AI and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, at the time, presumably the idea of a talking, friendly computer seemed bananas. Yes, I mean, the, wh wh people now obviously use these things like Siri and yeah. and, and similar devices. Uh, this Hal was basically that. Uh, mm. You told Hal what you wanted it to do, and it did it. Now, it, it wasn't the only thing uh, that was predicted by that film. Now, we haven't mentioned, and I, I really do need to mention the other person behind 2001 A Space Odyssey, an old friend of mine who's long since dead now, I'm afraid, Arthur C. Clarke, yeah. uh, the science fiction writer. It was his idea. It came from a short story that he wrote back in the early 1950s. And he collaborated with Kubrick to uh, create, to invent HAL uh, for the film. But they also invented the iPad. I mean, it's just astonishing. Yeah, I'd forgotten about the iPad business. Dr. Yeah. Floyd, as he's in the space shuttle and he's reading the newspaper on his iPad. And that is, what, 30 years before, yeah. 40 years before the iPad was invented? Yeah, incredible. When I, I, I kind of forgotten about how predictive it has been. And tell me this, you mentioned now how to see it. So what are you suggesting people do to watch it? I mean, I presume okay. you're, you're suggesting don't watch it on your phone. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I am definitely saying don't watch it on your phone. 
you know, if you have to settle for a really good print in a really good cinema, you know, okay. But by far the best way to see this film is to get on the boat to Liverpool and get the train to Bradford. It is that simple. Okay, (laughs) you're going to have to explain that. (laughs) The only cinema in the world that shows 2001 A Space Odyssey to the public on a regular basis is uh, the Science Museum in Bradford. They have a full working Cinerama theatre. And uh, they show it fairly regularly. Now, a warning to everybody, uh, the museum in Bradford has been closed uh, since last October for renovations. They're not reopening now until the summer. Okay. Um, But they assure me that the Cinerama Theatre will reopen uh, sometime this summer. The last time they showed 2001 A Space Odyssey was last April. There was a, there was a, a week-long series of showings mm. uh, at Bradford. It is the only place in the world where you can watch 2001 A Space Odyssey as Stanley Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke intended you to see it. Wow. Now, I often say to people in this slot, you know, wow, you really know a lot about that movie. That movie runs deep with you. But you've quite literally travelled <laughs> to see this movie. So this is unquestionably your favourite movie by the sounds of things, to the point that you're able to tell me what cinemas in the world are going to show it. Yeah, well, I mean, it, as I said, the, 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 the Space Odyssey, of all the Cinerama films... Space Odyssey is the one that most perfectly used the technology. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's been overtaken. The, there were, there's very good reasons why Cinerama wasn't really uh, a long-term success. And it's mostly to do with just how damn complicated it is uh, to show 160 degrees uh, on, on a cinema screen. Mm. It causes all sorts of problems. You know, <laughs> if, if actors are talking to each other, and one is on one side of the screen and one is on the other, they look like they're talking past each other. Mm. Um, it has weird effects. Yeah. So um, Kubrick recognized that his movie, because it's all effects. Now, that's the other thing we need to emphasize to anybody who goes to watch this, because it's not. they don't say it in the film because it didn't exist at the time. There is not a single second of film on the screen that you see that was created by a computer. Everything that you see on the screen in 2001, A Space Odyssey, was created either in the lens or by some chemical means. I say chemical means because, and I I mentioned an acid trip at the very beginning, (laughs) because it really does have that feel about it. And one of the reasons it has that feel about it is that Kubrick has one particularly weird acid scene in it that's a real trip, and he did it basically mixing chemicals okay. uh, on screen. So it looks like it's th- they've used, you know, the, the absolute top of the range computer graphics, but mm. no computer in it at all, apart from Hal. Wow, isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? Well, listen, that is a brilliant uh, explainer of why 2001 A Space Odyssey is your favourite movie, having seen it in the original Cinerama. Let me ask you two quick space-related things, and forgive me if you've been asked these your entire life, but bear with me, just seeing as you're on the line. Was it, from what I gather of your long 
lifelong obsession with, with space. But you never really had a desire to be an astronaut. You weren't one of these people hoping to make it into NASA and, and get some kind of pedestrian journey up there, or were you? No, no, never. I've no head for heights. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that's, that's, a, that's a game, a game stopper uh, at the start. It really, I it never really entered my head that I yeah. would want to do something like that. I, I was interested in the science. I spent a lot of time during the Apollo program actually in the science uh, support rooms at Mission Control. Yeah. And, uh, you know, what excited me more than the astronauts bouncing around on the on the moon was the rocks, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> and listen, I'm sure you've been asked this before, but the very contemporary trend of billionaires going into space, is that a good thing or a bad thing for space exploration? Well, um, it, it's both. Okay. Um, you know, in, in the reality is that, you know, the billionaires will do what billionaires do. Yes. Uh, and there's no question that one particular billionaire... Um, who has has been very successful with his rockets, uh, but less successful in just about everything else that he does. Um, he he certainly has made an impact, an important impact. Um, I just wish he would stick to launching rockets uh, and uh, you know a, a little bit less of the trade union bashing uh, and uh, his uh, his other exploits uh, and just stick to making good rockets. That would uh, that would be great for me. Leo Enright tells M hyphen, stick to the rockets. I love it. His favourite movie is definitely 2001 A Space Odyssey. Leo Enright, a pleasure to talk to you. My pleasure. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. What's the problem? I think you know what the problem is just as well as I do. What are you talking about, Hal? This mission is too important for me to allow you to jeopardize it. I don't know what you're talking about, Hal. I know that you and Frank were planning to disconnect me. And I'm afraid that's something I cannot allow to happen. Where the hell did you get that idea, Hal? Dave. Although you took very thorough precautions in the pod against my hearing you, I could see your lips move. A clip there from 2001 Space Odyssey, the favourite movie of Leo Enright. That was fascinating. That is it for this week. Next week, George Clooney. Yes, he's on the show. And it's definitely going to happen because I've already done it. I'll also be talking to Joel Edgerton as George Clooney directed and Joel Edgerton stars in a new movie called The Boys in the Boat. A kind of boating movie in the vein of Chariots of Fire or something like that. So that is George Clooney a star in the movie Callum Turner and Joel Edgerton on the show next week. So you will not want to miss that. I think... In the meantime, I will just remind you that this show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5pm on Newstalk.com and the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud. And of course, it's on the radio every Saturday at 6pm here on Newstalk. Get in touch with me at any stage. John underscore Fardy is my Twitter handle. Or you can email me, screentime at Newstalk.com. Thank you for listening. Have a safe week ahead.